0: On air, online, on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: It's great to have you along for Wednesday's edition of the Country Hour. We've got a jam-packed program, including the latest from the task force addressing animal welfare standards in Tasmanian abattoirs
2: actually asked a processor if you were to take over an abattoir tomorrow what would be one of the first things you do to ensure animal welfare and they said I'd look at our people what training and competency they have so that's what we'll be we'll be looking at next.
1: And we'll head across Bass Strait and check in with a couple of farmers on King and Flinders Islands Well, typically flushed for feed. What's their story this summer?
3: Yeah we haven't sort of managed to snag some of those rains that have been hitting parts of Tassie and the a lot of Victoria, they've sort of gone around us, but saying that we've We've had about 40 or 50 meals for the year and it, we have grown some covers with that.
1: More from Tom Yule at Killacrankey at the northern end of Flinders in about 10 minutes from now. We're also talking asparagopsis. It's that methane-busting seaweed fed to livestock. Where are things at with commercialising it in the country for the livestock industry? You can join the conversation any time as well. Love to hear from you this afternoon. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is the number to text in and we're going to kick off with livestock because Tasmanian federal independent Andrew Wilkie has called for an immediate ban on live cattle exports. It follows the stranding of a ship holding 15,000 sheep and cattle off the Fremantle coast in an apparent stalemate between the federal government and the live exporter due to biosecurity concerns. Mr Wilkie spoke to Lucy Macdonald.
4: It's now 26 days since the live export vessel, the Bahaji left Fremantle bound for Jordan via the Red Sea. That vessel, of course, had to be turned around because of the dangerous conditions in the Red Sea. Uh, The result is that the 15,000 livestock, mostly sheep, are still on the vessel on day 26, now uh, uh, moored just off Fremantle in Western Australia. There are so many layers to this which are alarming. First and foremost is the welfare of those 15,000 sheep and cattle. They've been in the most intolerable conditions uh, for 26 days now, and they're currently sitting on a stationary vessel, which means there's no movement of air through it. It will be unbearably hot, unbearably filthy, they will be shockingly fatigued and susceptible to disease and nothing's being done about it. Uh, The vessel is just resting off Fremantle. As far as we know, no independent vet vet has been sent out out to check on the livestock. Uh, As far as we know, There's no plan to bring those 15,000 sheep and cattle ashore and into quarantine so they can be cared for and recover. Um, What we do fear is that plans are afoot to actually um, send the vessel via the Cape of Good Hope the alternative way around to Israel, which would be another 33 days at sea. Um, This is no way to treat Australian livestock. Uh, In my opinion, those uh, livestock have got to be taken off that vessel as soon as humanly possible, put into quarantine and cared for properly. And I'll tell you what else has got to happen. This has got to be another wake-up call to the current government to fast-track its plan to ban the live export of sheep from Australia to the Middle East. Um, Not that we needed another reminder, but this is another reminder. Now, to give credit to the federal Labor government, they are progressing slowly, a plan to phase out live sheep exports to the Middle East. But we're having consultation after consultation, and there is still not even a date uh, provided by the government for when the ban will come into place. So, you know, I, I I just call out to the federal government, for a start find out what clown in the regulator decided it was a good idea to give a permit for the vessel to go via the Red Sea to Jordan in the first place, Uh, and to make a decision to get the sheep off the ship, get them into quarantine, get them cared for, and then get out in front of the camera and give us a date for when the live trade ban will be put in place. Because the fact is, the live export trade is inherently cruel. It does not have uh, public support. It takes Australian uh, meat processing jobs. And in fact, the only way to end the cruelty is to end the trade.
5: How important is it to come up with this plan quickly? At the moment, we've got all these sheep and cattle sitting out on a boat in a really, really hot day. Um, You know, while you might have the groups who want different things, uh, they can both seem to agree on the fact there needs to be a plan.
4: Oh, absolutely. And and that's one one of the alarming aspects of this. One of the alarming dimensions of this is that the vessel is sitting off Fremantle and we don't know what the plan is. Um, As far as we know, there is no plan yet. Uh, The regulator and the government are still, uh, you know, gazing into their navel and reflecting on the situation.
5: Is an Australian abattoir really the solution?
4: Um, Look, (laughs) frankly, the live export trade has to be banned. Sheep and cattle because we know from an abundance of evidence that the live export trade is systemically cruel, it doesn't have popular support, and it takes Australian jobs.
1: That's Independent MP Andrew Wilkie speaking in Hobart earlier this morning. Thanks to Lucy MacDonald for that report. 0438 You might have a view on the situation in Fremantle um, that's evolving with that live export vessel. Uh, sheep stranded, some 15,000 sheep stranded on that vessel due to quarantine issues and a stalemate between the federal government and and uh, the state government in WA and uh, the uh, the live exporter. You might have an opinion. Please share it with me, 0438 922 936. Gil says, uh, totally agree with Andrew. Uh, so, yep, yeah, keep those texts coming. Um, we're going to stay with animal we- welfare issues because... Tasmania's Agriculture Minister says she's not prepared to commit to eventual recommendations from a task force set up to address animal welfare standards in abattoirs. Now, last year footage was released from inside five Tasmanian abattoirs allegedly revealing cruel treatment of animals, triggering an ongoing investigation. Minister Palmer fronted reporters yesterday afternoon to give an update.
6: We want to be in a position where very quickly we can regain the confidence of the people of Tasmania that they will know that animals are treated respectfully, that uh, farmers will have great uh, security in knowing that when uh, their animals leave their property that they are going somewhere where they will be treated with respect and they will be treated with kindness and in a humane manner. So I'm really grateful uh, to the women standing beside me uh, leading the charge to see a real and a real change, meaningful change, uh, when it comes to animal welfare right across our livestock processing facilities.
2: Yes, I'm Felicity Richards. I'm a beef farmer and standing in front of you as chair of the task force. Um, Obviously the first thing we've looked at is video surveillance. Um, The government has mandated that so the task force's focus has been how that tool can be implemented in our facilities around the state. Uh, The next thing that we'll be looking at is staff training and competency in processing facilities and we'll continue to work through um, this work as quickly as possible to get those standards and guidelines um, to government.
5: As a farmer, what was it like for you seeing... um, I don't know if you've seen the vision. Yes, I have. Yes, what was it like for you seeing the vision, the way these cows and sheep and pigs were treated at the end of their lives?
2: It's heartbreaking when you see that. You don't want that. I don't think anyone becomes a farmer because they want to see their animals in distress. So there is the reality that I breed animals for slaughter, and I accept that, but I want every moment until that point of slaughter to be as calm for them as possible. So as my grandpa would say, at the point of slaughter, their worries are over. But what I want is for them to have very, very few worries right up until that point. So it's critical to me as a farmer that we get this right.
5: We were here six years ago. We saw TQM and Gretna in the media over animal cruelty issues. Are you disappointed that we're back here
2: again? Yes. Yes, I am.
5: Are you hoping, you know, do you expect that any recommendations that your task force makes will actually be implemented?
2: Absolutely. This is where we want animal welfare to be something that people do whether government is looking over their shoulder or not. Mm. I don't expect people to care for animals and treat them humanely because they're worried about whether they'll be fined. I expect them to do it because it's the right thing to do and that's why we're farmers. And if I only treated the cows on our property with humanity because I thought someone might come knocking and look, I don't think I'd make much of a farmer and I think I can speak for the task force and for farmers and processes all around Tasmania and indeed Australia when I say that.
5: We've had ag experts going through the videos because, of course, you know, we as journalists can't tell mm-hmm. what, how it should look and shouldn't, and there's been a lot of concerns around both training, like a lot of the times mm-hmm. they're saying the stunning is ineffective, um, you know, just not done properly, and then at the same time, there's, in certain places, there's been concerns around actually having incorrect equipment. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a double question here. But firstly, you know, do you know yet what the
2: standards for training even are? So we know what's happening in some areas now. So I've had the privilege of speaking to some processors who've been very generous in talking about what training they put their staff through and what mentoring they have in place, and that's really useful. But what... The reason we're looking at training and competency, indeed it will start in our next meeting, which is tomorrow, is because we recognise that as a really critical space. I actually asked a processor, if you were to take over an abattoir tomorrow, what would be one of the first things you do to ensure animal welfare? And they said, I'd look at our people, what training and competency they have. So that's what we'll we'll be looking at next.
6: We will do whatever we need to do to not be back in this situation again. Minister, you said earlier you'd look
5: at the recommendations. Will you commit now? to actually implementing them all without having seen them?
6: No, what we'll be doing is we're going to be working side by side with the task force. This is is
5: a task force made up of animal welfare people, of ag people, you know, it's a huge body of experience you put together. If they come forward and say, this needs to be done, will you do it?
6: I think that would definitely be something that would be considered.
5: And you've talked about the surveillance cameras, and as you mentioned, um, most of the abattoirs actually have them already. Um, some of the ones that were caught on camera had them already, obviously that's one part of the puzzle, you know, are you, do you do you want the task force to come up with some way to ensure that it's being monitored by an outside body?
6: And that's the sort of work that the task force has been asked to look at. We're looking at the quality of the video. What what does the quality need to be? Where does it actually need to be on the floor? How long should the the video surveillance uh, footage be kept for? These are all the questions that our task force is looking at. And then who needs to monitor that footage? And again, so many options are being put forward. Could we have AI that could be involved in that there? Is it something that the department needs to do? Is it an independent body? These are the questions that our task force is looking at and these are, you know, I'm excited. I can't wait to hear uh, what they come back to the table with so that we can move forward from here.
1: Tasmanian Agriculture Minister uh, Joe Palmer there with an update on an investigation into footage allegedly showing animal mistreatment at five Tasmanian abattoirs. You also heard from Riverside Beef farmer Felicity Richards, who's heading up that task force, and Minister Palmer said the task force would be delivering updates on the situation every few weeks. Uh, back on the issue of the live export vessel stranded off the coast of Western Australia, uh, had a texter in through here. Uh, he says uh, this person says Andrew Wilkie seems to know all, even. How these sheep are feeling off the coast of WA, the mortality rate of sheep on boats, this person says, are less than if they stayed on farms. And to say that they are also taking Australian jobs is farcical. Uh, The texter says we can't get enough Australians to work on farms and processing facilities as it is. Uh, Another texter from Gill, further to animal ill treatment. Uh, it's a bit rich for the Minister, Joe Palmer, to cry crocodile tears after lack of monitoring had caused uh, so much pain and suffering, not to mention stressed animals don't make the best meat. 0438 if you'd like to join the conversation this afternoon on the Tasmanian Country Hour.
7: ABC Listen. Keeping bored parents busy is easy with the ABC Listen app. Then
5: we can listen to our stuff. Find out things with Imagine This. Why do we have to sleep? Ask big questions with Short and Carly. They must be fun with getting insulted back. And catch the dinosaur racing with Dino Dino Mike. Listen big to podcasts and audiobooks just for us on the ABC Listen app. Download it now from your app
0: store. It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Where it's 20 past 12, well, no one, me included, likes to wish away summer. But a number of farmers already have their sights set on an autumn break to reboot pastures. On Flinders Island, it's been a bit of a balancing act, managing feed reserves, after missing out on some recent rains along Tasmania's east coast. And that's been the experience for Tom Yule. He runs an Angus cattle operation on Flinders' northern end, Killer Cranky, with his wife
3: Jo. So uh, rainfall last year, we ended up about 100 mils down on our annual average, so about 550 mils, i on- Tipped out last year. Uh, we sort of had a sporadic spring, uh, dry early in September, and even I think August was a bit dry. And then we we got a spring in October, thankfully. No, um, oh, about the time there were some decent bushfires over here, which were behaving a bit like a summer bushfire. It was that dry. And so yeah, since then we 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 got a spring of sorts, and um, yeah, got some. Got some decent decent growth going, but um, yeah, we haven't sort of managed to snag some of those rains that have been hitting parts of Tassie and a lot of Victoria. They've sort of gone around us. But saying that, we've we've had about I think we'd be up to almost 40 or 50 mils for the year, and we have grown some covers with that. Um, I'd sort of pulled the triggers to wean early, just knowing that um, I didn't have that bulk of spring to sort of carry everything through till. Sort of Marchish was when I usually wean, so um, I weaned, um, and yeah, I've might, my my have been on on um, yeah some some of the better ground, which has sort of got away um, with some of these um, summer active clovers, red clovers, and some of the ryegrass areas have have got away in my heavier country, but all my sort of hilly country that's mainly kikuyu and stuff, and get a, a bit of a drink. Um, keeps it going, but it's not the highest sort of protein grasses getting around, so um, it's it's good for carrying the the cows through the summer. They've sort of um, dropped back to about 5 DC now that they're weaned. So, um, yeah, it just sort of got plans in place a little bit earlier than than normal, I suppose.
1: Is there much hay moving around the island, or is is it a bit uh, short this year?
3: Definitely down. I don't know if you'd say half or something. The amount of hay was cut this year or probably less, but yeah, I've, I'm have i not a big hay producer. I'll generally just buy a bit of hay for weaning. Yeah, and there's, there's been some people that are doing sort of lot feeding uh, around the island. Um, some have got hold of a decent amount of hay to sort of feed their cows and, and give the weaners the rest of the farm, and I think we had a run on pellets coming in. Um, there was a bit of a short supply early January, but I think. They're starting to come in now. Some people are feeding pellets out to calves. So, um, yeah, everyone's sort of on track, but I think everyone's trying to get uh, down to their winter stocking rate a bit earlier than normal, get rid of any surplus animals that out of the system. Definitely people are trying to preg test as soon as they can uh, to get rid of any dry cattle.
1: And what is your approach to the market in 2024, there was so much upheaval for uh, beef and sheep last season. Are you doing anything differently?
4: We're definitely
3: uh, sort of thinking more about our spend. Um, uh, Fertiliser hasn't been... A, a, we're still doing uh, our maintenance, but we haven't put any, any capital on this year. But, yeah, it would just tighten the screws a little bit, but we're, I'm confident that, um, yeah, it's on the way up again. Um, We saw some pretty high highs So um, yeah, what goes up must come down a bit I suppose So um, there's still a a dollar in it So um, we haven't got sort of out of our hands We'll just do what we can do And um, the rest will take care of itself
1: And uh, you've locked in contracts obviously then Uh, Are you you adding more to the numbers that you're sending off the island?
3: I haven't locked in any contracts for this year None of them have come out yet uh, I did last year. I locked in some with Greenham's early, which was proved to be uh, a good thing because the price was dropping. But no, nothing this year. I've I've still got a few steers to go to the feedlot. Um, they're going next week. Uh, just trying to um, there's been a bit of a backlog there, but they I'll be done with all of them. And um, yeah, got a few cows going to the abattoir tomorrow. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll only have pregnant cows and heifers sort of uh in the system in a couple of weeks once i preg test and then yeah the wieners will be running around down at my um yeah the the block down at tilba so um yeah everything's sort of in place and yeah working working well at this stage but obviously um an early autumn break would make it a lot easier but um we'll just see what happens
1: well they're not as reliable as they once were are they
3: No, no, but, um, no, definitely not. Last year we got a good one early. You definitely see it. We can manipulate it a bit better with, um, nitrogen these days. So, um, yeah, I'll probably have to, uh, bring that into the system again, um, and sort of think about, um, quantities of that sort of as, uh, February goes on and, um, yeah, we'll be planning for, um, trying to, trying to sort of, uh, set up for the winter, trying to get a wedge of feed ahead of us so we can, um get my rotation out to where I want it.
1: Flinders Island bee farmer Tom Yule chatting there about the season. And it's a similar story on King Island, the land of mild weather and plenty of water. Anita Pulson breeds and fattens cattle on the island and reckons conditions are so dry she will probably have to send cattle to the feedlots to finish for the first time ever. She says farmers have cut only half their usual amount of hay, just like on Flinders, and are starting to organise extra water infrastructure.
8: Um, so, we're in the south of the island, um, sort of near Mount Stanley, which is the highest rainfall on King Island. And here at home, at the moment, I'm just looking at a mob of heifers in the paddock. Um, and they've got, I'm going to say, they've got reasonable feed ahead of them um, for the next few weeks. But after that, it'll be a bit lean. Yeah, it's pretty dry for King Island. <laughs> mm. um, we had a very early, short. Um, which didn't really grow the bulk
9: of feed it normally would. Okay, so is there much hay floating around the island?
8: No, not really. People probably cut, well, I don't know, maybe less than half of the hay and silage they normally would.
9: Wow. Uh, yeah. The rain. So the rainfall, you're saying the rainfall hasn't been quite as good this year?
8: No, well, uh, so our average rainfall here on our place is 1,200 mil, um, and for... 2023, we only got just over 900 mil. So yeah, about 300 mil short of normal. Anita, last
9: year was uh, pretty tumultuous in terms of the cattle market. What's your approach coming into 2024?
8: Uh, Coming into 2024, well, like everyone, we're hoping that the price is going to come up a bit, which seems like it might be. Um, But mostly because of the season for us here, we probably will sell... Um, cattle to the feedlots Which is not something we normally do Normally we fatten everything But this year we will offload and store deers and, mm. and not finish them, not keep them Just because we don't want to use all our hay and silage To fatten them When we could probably just get just as much for them now As if, if we held on to them
9: Yeah right, so you'll send them um, over to the main, over to the Tassie mainland
8: Yeah Yeah.
9: How many are you looking at doing um, that for?
8: Oh it'll probably be
9: 100, hundred, two hundred. Yeah, right. Has, is that uh something you well, you said you don't normally do that. Have you had to do it before?
8: No. No. We've never sold feedlot cattle like cattle to the feedlot from here. Well whatever you have to do, you have to do.
9: What's happening in terms of water over there?
8: That's probably the oh, apart from the lack of feed, lack of water is probably the biggest you know, biggest challenge at the moment. For those that don't have piped water to troughs. the dams will be you know they're starting to run out now Um, and so there is a lot of water infrastructure going into the ground as we speak we're putting in some a lot Um, yeah wherever you look around the island there's polypipe going in everywhere.
9: Right in fact you were doing something along those lines today I think when I called you.
8: Yep all day (laughs) Uh, putting in some new tanks and organising Troughs, trying to get some troughs out of Victoria, which is not easy. No, so, yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, water is a big thing at the moment. That's
9: all. Mm. Cool. That's probably is that. Would you say that's the main concern in people's minds at the oh, moment?
8: Oh, feed and water. Like I think I've heard that. You know, because people didn't cut much hay or silage, so a lot of people are buying pellets for their weaners instead of just exclusively feeding them on hay and silage. That they're um, they're buying pellets as well to stretch out. You know, because they're worried they mightn't get. You know, through the season with their silage. Some people feed a bit of silage in the winter here, and they, yeah, because they don't have much, they don't really want to um, use it all on at weaning. So yeah, people are buying pellets, which they would probably normally never do. Yeah, I reckon we're probably six weeks, you know, further into the season. Like normally, you know, it'd be six weeks down down the track before we were, you know, here and the spring and the autumn break wouldn't be very far away. But yeah, I reckon we're probably about six weeks ahead of where we normally are. We're under control, I think.
1: That's good to hear. King Island beef farmer Anita Poulsen talking to Meg Powell about the very dry conditions on uh, on the island. Lots of text coming through regarding animal welfare standards in abattoirs in Tasmania and also the situation evolving in Western Australia with that live export vessel. I'll get to those After the weather. Thanks, Ellie. And uh, we're going to look at what's happening with our weather in just a tick. But have you noticed your insurance premiums jumping again this year for the car, the house, the contents? What about insuring assets on the farm, like machinery? Some farmers are taking the risk and letting their gear go uninsured because of the blowouts. We're going to be taking a look at that after the weather. And have you spotted many snakes on your property over summer? While they might give you a fright, they're actually pretty beneficial.
10: The obvious cost of having venomous snakes like brown snakes around is that they can bite you and you can die. But the reality is that very few people in Australia die from snake bite. It's an average of less than three people a year across the entire country. So the risk is actually much smaller than most people would imagine.
1: That story uh, in about uh, 10 minutes from now. But first, let's get that all-important forecast for Wednesday, Luke Johnston is at the Weather Bureau for us this afternoon. Any rain around Luke?
11: Good afternoon. Yeah, not a heap of rain. There was about four to five millimetres of rainfall overnight into the west coast, particularly uh, at the Zion observation site, but nothing significant elsewhere and nothing since 9am as well. So the remainder of today is looking fine everywhere except for the upper east coast where, or the upper parts of the east coast where we might have some afternoon showers developing on a sea breeze convergence line, but not expecting significant falls. Be lucky to get more than a few drops out of that one. So yeah, going on your story about King Island being dry, it's, it's fairly dry everywhere. Um, there's, Lots of westerly winds coming later this week. Uh, plenty of showers coming into the west, although not the heaviest, but it looks to remain dry pretty well everywhere across the north and, and east of Tasmania for the remainder of the week, even though there's a cold front coming through. Cold front uh, expected tomorrow afternoon or evening will bring some very strong westerly winds, so expect it to be very windy tomorrow, particularly tomorrow night into Friday morning, with uh, wind gusts expected to reach sort of 80 to 90 kilometres per hour during Thursday afternoon, potentially peaking overnight and during Friday morning in the 90 to 100 kilometres per hour range. So not quite enough to get a severe weather warning for damaging winds, but it's getting close, so stay tuned and maybe just move things out of the uh, exposed wind if you can.
1: You might need to double peg your washing, Luke. Double peg the washing,
11: turn the trampoline over now (laughs) before it gets turned over unexpectedly. And uh, one thing to note too, because it has been so dry and because it is very windy, uh, there's a big spike in fire weather conditions uh, for both Thursday and Friday, particularly Friday with uh, very windy, dry conditions causing high fire dangers with pockets of extreme fire danger expected on Friday as well. So potentially one of the more significant fire weather days, even though it's not going to be that hot. Temperatures are only going to be in the range of 15 to 20 degrees, but elevated fire... um, the conditions due to the uh, potential for, for fire behaviour to be difficult to control, if okay. there are any.
1: Okay, we'll keep our ear across that. Uh, what's going on with Coastal Waters today? Alright,
11: coastal waters. It's a pretty quiet one today. Uh, west to southwesterly, 15 to 25 knots, tending southeast to northeastly about the east coast during the afternoon, reaching up to 30 knots at times in the far south and through uh, the central north coast. Tomorrow, westerly, 25 to 35 knots, although a little lighter inshore about parts of the east coast. Swell wise, today and tomorrow about the western south, there's a west to southwesterly, 3 to 4 metres, that continues through to tomorrow, uh, through Bass Strait, a westerly to around 1 metre, and the east coast has got a South to southwesterly, one to two metres. Significant wave height of 3.6 metres off the west coast at the moment. Any warnings? Um, Only strong wind warnings and... uh, Well, coastal wind warnings, I should say, at the moment. So today, a strong wind warning for the central north coast and for southern and western waters between Tasman Island and Sandy Cape. Tomorrow, a gale warning for eastern coastal waters... Uh, eastern and southern coastal waters from Cape Portland to Low Rocky Point, excluding the Upper East Coast for west to southwesterly winds, and a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, the southwest lakes and all southeast inshore waters, apart from the Zealand Estuary. Worth keeping in mind that uh, Friday is likely to be windier, so there'll be more gales, and uh, it's very marginal, but keep an eye out for the potential for a severe weather warning for damaging wind uh, Thursday night into Friday and potential for any um, you know fire weather-related alerts coming from the TFS.
1: Great. Thank you for that, Luke. Thanks. Luke Johnson there from the Weather Bureau.
0: Evenings with Helen Shield. Laima Jansone. She is virtuoso
1: on this Latvian instrument. The kouakla is a plucked string instrument. It's also the instrument of the soul. At what point did you decide you needed to take it on a multi-day bushwalk? I think it was Anita's idea. But it will be so beautiful there. And I said yes because I didn't know what does it mean, this bushwalk. <laughs> Helen Shield, Coast to coast.
0: Monday to Thursday from 7 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: In a tick we'll talk about the spike in insurance premiums on farms and also the latest on uh, developments in asparagopsis. It's that uh, bright pink, red, reddish algae that is methane busting. So it's, uh, it's fed to livestock and it's designed to try and reduce the amount of methane that uh, sheep and cattle omit. We'll hear from Future Feed, It's sort of uh, the the arm of CSIRO that's developed um, asparagopsis and where things are at with commercialising that for Australian producers. Uh, We've got a few texts to get through and uh, earlier in the program we heard from Independent Federal MP Andrew Wilkie about his calls to end the live export trade on the back of the vessel um, stuck off the coast of Western Australia with 15,000 sheep on board. Maggie has sent a text in on 0438 936. She says a dollar, that's the bottom word, and that's why the boat is stuck off WA, the dollar, not compassion. Um... We've also heard from Patrick in Trevallon. The shipload of sheep off the coast of Perth is the present situation down to who pays the cost and covers the losses. The welfare of sheep is secondary to all the major players. And also we were talking about uh, the task force that's been set up to take a look at animal welfare standards in Tasmanian abattoirs. Uh, Michael says, why hasn't something been done about these animal activists trespassing on properties and breaking into these abattoirs? If anybody else did, we would be charged. Thank you so much for joining in the conversation on the Tasmanian Country Hour this afternoon. Larissa Smith with you. Great to have your company.
0: Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, huge increases in insurance premiums are pushing farmers to consider running the gauntlet and leaving some of their machinery uninsured. Ryan Milgate is a Victorian farmer and also the Grains counsellor with the Victorian Farmers Federation and he says insurance bills have just gone through the roof.
12: Well, insurance bills have been rising probably for the last three or four years. So just Well, just looking at ours quickly this morning... Um you know, we've more than doubled since sort of pre-COVID levels. So, you know, the increases have been very significant.
7: And is it twofold, Ryan, that the value of what you're insuring, particularly machinery, uh, is increasing a lot, but then uh, aside from that, the, the premiums themselves are increasing as well?
12: Yeah, well, that, that's personally what we've seen from our perspective. And so, um, look, I can't really comment from the, you know, the, the risk side of, why those premiums have have gone up but certainly in in our situation that I think everyone knows the cost of everything's gone up and new machinery and, and the value of the machinery that you have got and if you do have to you know replace it the cost of that is you know increased significantly as well so we're sort of getting a double whammy here which is not great.
7: Can you just give me a sense of what what a typical farmer, I know it's hard to say typical farmer, but what a farmer's insurance bill may be when they're insuring, you know, a few sheds, a few million dollars worth of gear, uh, maybe crop insurance on top of that. How much could they be paying out?
12: Yeah, well, look, if you leave the crop insurance out for for a second, I, I think it wouldn't be hard to find plenty of operations with, you know, insurance bills in the north of 100,000 comfortably, Um, and they're not large operations. They're, like, they're not, you know, not large corporate-style operations, just medium to large farmers, but, yeah, definitely lots, you know, 50 grand doesn't go very far at all anymore um, once you start insuring, particularly, you know, harvesters and sprayers and tractors and stuff like that.
7: And given how substantial that cost is, are you hearing people scale back on their on their insurance and uh, cancel their insurance on items that they typically would have always insured?
12: Yeah, look, I have lots of conversations just here, there and everywhere and people talk about self-insuring with lots of probably more the smaller stuff. I mean, it's um, it's incredibly risky to insure an expensive machine like a, a harvester or something that you've got. Well, it's a requirement to have them financed. So, but, yeah, certainly, um, you know, the smaller bits and pieces, the uh, older stuff that you normally would have had, you know, insured just in case is dropping off. And a lot of talk around crop insurance, um, I mean, that's another... There'd be people paying out that figure I quoted earlier, again, just crop insurance. I'm hearing a lot of guys, you know, with um, fire and hail are looking at self-insurance or... Or, you know, depending on cash flow and um, equity and all that kind of stuff, there's, you know, people are making decisions to potentially take on greater risks than they they may have been prepared to in the past.
7: And in terms of why premiums have gone up so much, I mean, we hear lines from the insurance companies, lines like uh, more uh, unpredictable weather and fire and flood, etc. But uh, do, do, do individuals feel like they're, perhaps if that's not, an issue at their farm that they're paying for the risks uh, of others?
12: A hundred percent. That's the sentiment that's going around is, um, look, you don't want to see anyone suffer any losses anywhere, but it's pretty hard to swallow that, you know, on the Wimbra Plains, your insurance is going up because of the, a flood impact on a on a major city, you know, in Northern Australia. It's kind of, it, it is a bit of pill to swallow and tr- get your head around.
7: Where to from here, Ryan, because these the costs typically only go in one direction. So a farmer's just going to have to keep tackling these, these rising premiums. Yeah.
12: Well, look, um, honestly, I'm not really sure off the bat what the alternatives are. Um, you know, like I alluded to before, if you expensive machinery and, 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 you know, where you're getting finance with the bank, you know, that's a requirement that does have to be insured. So, um, I think we're always still going to be using insurance, but I think people are being more and more, um, you know, making sure that they haven't got things left on the list or they're really starting to self-assess the risks they take and, you know, what they are prepared to wear. And, um, you know, same as, I guess, households, are, you know, trimming costs where they can, um, I think that sort of applies to, you know, farm businesses and, um, and insurance.
1: That was Ryan Milgate, a Wimmera farmer and grains councillor with the Victorian Farmers Federation, speaking with Angus Verley. TAS Farmers says it's hearing a similar story from producers in the state that premiums are going through the roof as well and it's become a significant line item for the farm budget. Well, let's move on to seaweed now. And Future Feed, the group that holds the global rights to asparagopsis, has released a report on progress towards commercialisation. Now, asparagopsis, if you don't know, is a red seaweed native to Australia that the CSIRO research showed could reduce methane emissions from cattle. Future Feed CEO Alex Spaker says nine companies worldwide have been licensed to produce it, and in a few different ways.
13: No one grew asparagus as we started this, um, this exercise. So um, the licensees have had to really um, develop de novo uh, methods and techniques for cultivating and developing this at significant scale. Um, and so they've made um, really good progress. There's a range of different technologies that have been developed uh, on a proprietary basis by um, a number of the licensees. There's... Um, Also, approaches being um, uh, made in the ocean-growing sense, so people are still looking at growing in the ocean, growing it on a terrestrial basis, and then also growing it in a more biotechnological basis, which is looking at using photobioreactors. So there's a real coverage in terms of the cultivation and each of those technologies have direct paths to significant scale into the millions of liters of, of cultivation of the seaweed.
14: So, what what do you think will get up first, and where will we see it coming from? Yeah, I, I, I think we'll
13: see it out of the um, out of the licensees uh, cultivation techniques, which will be you know terrestrial, land based uh, methodologies using tanks, raceways, and and other things where. They've adopted it from existing technologies in the um, algal, other algal technology spaces. So I think that's where we'll see it. And then I do think um, we'll see, um, you know, increased supply come from both the nation base and as well as then the, um, the biotech uh, approaches.
14: And what about um, asparagopsis compared to other products on the market? Because the Dutch have had the running on this, haven't they? They're, they're kind of, with their product Boviar, it's really been out there for quite some time now.
13: Yeah, absolutely. And the Dutch probably started a decade even before um, this Baragopsis technology um, was even invented. So, I mean, they've been at this nearly 20 years, um, so they've definitely got a um, a leading start. That's been really actually very helpful for us to understand um, how regulators are seeing the space, um, particularly on a, on a global basis, looking at the... You know, large markets in Europe and the US or the Americas broadly. Um, so, uh, are you
14: coming to the party late? Do you think? Like, what are the what are the what's the potential for actually they... selling the product once it's
13: developed? Yeah, no, I developed? think um, there is there's a significant efficacy difference between what we see in terms of reduction of methane by feeding asparagopsis compared to the utilization of bover. So, I think um, that we we do have. Um, an equal, uh, and in fact, better chance of um, providing greater levels of um, abatement of methane in,
14: in the different um, animal systems. But there was some concern about handling asparagopsis, wasn't there? That it was toxic at some level.
13: Um, at, at you know the way we've um, formulated and looked at the feeding amounts, so we've spent a significant amount of research um, and uh, you know commercial research to establish uh, the feeding amounts, which are very very small relative to the overall feed that's given to an animal on a daily basis. And at that level, it's very, very safe um, for, for both the handlers uh, and the animals as well. So
14: so no, one of the recent trials was showing that the reductions in emissions was quite effective up to a certain point. But when you push beyond a certain level of, of using this barragopsis, it, it potentially could dive again. So does the animal adjust and then the emissions go up again?
13: so what we 've seen um, one of the longest um, or longitudinal studies that we 've seen there was no adaption um, to the uh, supplement across the the time period, and we 've also seen that across all the other studies which were um, slightly shorter so I mean, the, at the moment we 've fed across you know seventy three to three hundred days, the evidence is we 're seeing that there 's no ad- adaptation at the levels that we 've um, dialed into, and that 's really the important thing that we 've really established a um, you know an amount that is effective um, to achieve an 80% reduction. You know within the, the beef feedlot setting, and then we'll continue to look at dairy uh, as we develop more data and, and positions around formulation.
1: FutureFeed CEO Alex Baker and he said work on a carbon emissions methodology should be finalised in a couple of years, clearing the way for producers to apply for official government carbon credits. FutureFeed has licensed partners here in uh, Tasmania, South Australia, WA and Victoria, as well as New Zealand, the United States, Europe and Canada. We've had a few more texts coming through in relation to uh, that conversation around animal welfare standards in the state. Uh, Dale says, hi, in regard to filming in abattoirs, and one listener stating the activists filming should be arrested. The law states, in the absence of the law, a citizen can take the law into his or her hands. These people should be congratulated, especially for the perseverance. And Gill says, could you please tell Michael the texter that if activists hadn't documented the failure of abattoirs to operate correctly, they would still be carrying on in the same way? He says clearly the government would not have and did not monitor standards.
0: Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith.
1: It's 10 to 1. We'll be catching up with livestock reporter Richard Bailey in just a few minutes. But finally, let's just talk about snakes. Have you ever heard the phrase... The only good snake is a dead snake. Well, when you bump into a snake on your property, the temptation may be to try and kill it, but there's research that argues snakes, like the widely found brown snake, can be hugely beneficial on agricultural land and could be a friend to farmers by chomping through thousands of mice. Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine, says attitudes are changing.
10: Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I certainly think that 20 or 30 years ago, you'd, almost everyone was saying the only good snakes are dead snake. Uh, these days, there's a lot of Australians who are prepared to coexist with snakes. Uh, so that's encouraging for someone like me, who's very fond of the creatures. Uh, but, you know, essentially what we need to do is to work out how to do it and why we should do it. And, and that's what this recent paper was about.
5: So trying to bring more people on board, not maybe necessarily being fond of snakes, but more happy to coexist with them. You've been doing some research into the benefits of of having snakes around the place.
10: Yeah, my colleague Peter Merchant and I um, sort of thought it was worth trying to put some numbers on, on that argument. The obvious cost of having venomous snakes like brown snakes around is that they can bite you and you can die. But the reality is that very few people in Australia die from snake bite. It's an average of less than three people a year across the entire country. So the risk is actually much smaller than most people would imagine. And in terms of the benefit, um, brown snakes, for example, can be incredibly abundant. Um, you know, we did some field work where we had 100 snakes per square kilometre in farmland down near Leeton. Um, that's a hell of a lot of brown snakes. You don't see them all that often because they spend most of their time underground. Uh, We had transmitters in snakes, so we we knew what they were doing, and and they're basically wandering around down in those burrows catching mice, and they don't actually come out all that often. So, you know, if you've got 100 brown snakes per square kilometre and each of those brown snakes is eating two or three mice per week, you start multiplying those numbers through, and you end up with several thousand mice uh, per year being taken out per square kilometre. And that can actually have a big impact on agricultural productivity.
1: That was Professor of Evolutionary Biology at Macquarie University, Rick Shine, speaking there with Selena Green. Richard Bailey.
15: Larissa. Have you ever had an
1: encounter with a snake?
15: <laughs> I have had encounters with snakes, but not for the sort of numbers that he was talking.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm no good with them. At all.
15: I just could stay away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what can you tell us about uh, livestock markets this week?
15: Okay, yesterday at Piranha, uh, another reasonably small yarding of, of trade and export cattle. Nowhere near the number of cows of last week and uh, more uh, heavier cattle and uh, heavy yearlings. Most of the market was 10 to 20 cents better. Sort of been expecting this for a while with the interstate trends. Uh, most of the yearling steers made 270 to 288 cents a kilo and heifers 234 to 272 cents. Some good quality grown steers and bullocks made two sixty to two hundred and seventy cents. Um, that'd be probably as good a price as we've seen for, with them for a while. Uh, and then dollars two twenty to two hundred and forty cents. Uh, just a few heavy cows. They were thirty cents better than, than last week. Uh, two sixteen to two hundred and twenty six cents, and the seconds one hundred and ninety two to one hundred and ninety six cents. There were three or four very heavy bulls, you know, over a thousand kilos, and they all made one hundred and forty cents a kilo.
1: And in uh, the lamb shop,
15: okay, we well, have few few less lambs, twelve hundred and twenty two lambs, no, just no weight um, barely barely a lamb over twenty four or five kilos, you know like uh, no very good heavy lambs in the market. The market across the board at that end was sort of I thought five to eight cents cheaper. Um, it meant that the best of the light trade lambs made ninety-two to a hundred dollars, and trade lambs one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and sixty-six. A bit of a variance there, depending on whether they were shorn or not shorn. Restockers bought uh, trade weight lambs for one hundred and ten to one hundred and thirty dollars, light trade one hundred and four to one hundred and eighteen, and light lambs at seventy to one hundred and ten dollars. Then over in the mutton yard less sheep but they were close enough to 2,500 sheep but from the outset the big heavy sheep were considerably dearer 10 to $15 dearer, probably the best mutton market we've seen um, or probably twelve months, or certainly nine months since we 've seen them at this rate um, anyway uh, it meant that the extra heavy sheep made sixty two to seventy eight dollars heavy sixty to eighty dollars medium weights forty five to seventy two and light sheep thirty five to fifty two dollars I did see some sheep down to ten or twelve dollars, but there were very few of them.
1: And any um, sales that we need to be across, yeah, Richard?
15: Yeah, next week, uh, obviously, we've got our normal piranha sale, but we go to Oatlands on Thursday. Uh, looks like there'll be, there'll be over 10,000 sheep sheep and lambs, mainly mainly lambs and some very good breeding lambs, you know, first-cost lambs, ewe lambs, so uh, that'll be good. And then the following week, we've got a store cattle sale. So, um, And then we start the wiener sales on the... Right at the end of the month, it's a, if it's the 29th happens to be a Thursday, it's then, or if it's about that anyway. Uh, and when those weaner sales go through uh, right through March and into April.
1: Terrific. Uh, Richard, we'll catch up with you on Friday.
15: Good on you, Roo, sir
14: did invite Tasports onto the radio. We've also put in calls to the Maritime Union.
6: Mornings with Leon Compton.
14: Michael Bailey, the CEO of the Tasmania Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I think what's important, though, that the union remembers is, you know, don't use Tasmania as a bargaining chip. They must make sure they keep these freight loans open. I feel really worried again about, you know, people, for example, that are waiting for windows to come in. They've probably been waiting for six months, and if the vessel keeps going, they'll be back on that waiting list again.
6: Leon Compton. Weekday mornings from 8.30 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC
0: Northern Tasmania. You're with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: You are indeed. And let's cross to Joel Reinberger, who's hosting Afternoon. See you there, Joel. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you.
16: Excellent, excellent. We've got a kind of a, a design theme running through a chunk of the show today. Uh, so we're going to be talking about, um, well, well, basics of design. We've got a designer who's moved back to Tasmania, the classic boomerang, moved back to Tasmania after this stellar kind of international career, you know, designing for brands like Coca-Cola and Nike and things like that. And has come back to Tasmania to establish a a practice uh, here. So we're going to talk about the basics because lots of people, the first few things they have to design for themselves, they do themselves. You don't hire a designer. If you start making jam for the markets, and you want people to remember how good your jam was and to come back again. You've got to have a label. And it means you've got to design a logo. It means you've got to actually do that kind of thing. So we're going to walk through some of the basics of design today and uh, uh, what, what that looks like, what tools you need, things to watch out for, things to do and not to do uh, from someone who is an incredibly good designer. Uh, we're also going to be talking about now, have you ever heard of graphic recording?
1: Oh, no. No.
16: Hit me. A completely new idea for me. Now, you know that you you have a brainstorm or a meeting or a conference and at the end there's often like a massive scribbling of notes on a board somewhere or, or you end up with the minutes or whatever. Graphic recording is kind of turning those into a little graphic with arrows going from place to place and faces representing the people who said those things. And you end up with something which is more like a visual memory map of what you have been through together, which works a lot better at actually, you know, eliciting those memories for you later than a dry list of stuff. So we're going to talk to someone who does that, you know, like an artist who goes to things like that and comes up with a graphic recording of the thing, which is then shared at the end of the conference, which people um, apparently get a lot out out of. Uh, and we're also going to talk about designing houses for our current climate and uh, for the changing climate. If you're going to build a house now, if it's any good, it'll be around for centuries. So what do you have to do to design a house now that's going to be good to live in for all that time?
1: Thanks, Joel. You can catch Joel on afternoons at one thirty. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. It's news time now, 1 o'clock.
14: To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket.